I'm Alicia Michalisic Kurtz, and welcome to Real Talk, a place where healthcare workers share stories about their real human experiences working in medicine. Today, we'll hear the third story in our series with the California Bridge Program, a program working to ensure access to 24-7 high-quality care in every California health system to people who use drugs. Today's story comes from Dr. Andrew Herring, an addiction medicine physician in San Francisco and principal investigator at California Bridge. Before we jump into Andrew's story, though, it's worth taking a beat to reflect a little on how we ended up with an opioid epidemic in this country in the first place. Now, there are books devoted to this topic, but for the purposes of this conversation, I just want to highlight a few key moments that directly tie that history to us the healthcare team. And basically, our role really begins in the 1980s with an article published in the Journal of Pain touting the efficacy of opioids, saying opioids are safe and should be used for everyone with pain freely and without concern. This was followed by the seminal article in Scientific American in 1990 titled The Tragedy of Needless Pain. In it, the author says that, contrary to popular belief, morphine taken solely to control pain is not addictive, and yet patients worldwide continue to be undertreated and to suffer unnecessary agony, he says. So the author is basically highlighting our fault as a medical community in not treating pain aggressively enough with opioids when we have this reportedly amazing and safe option available to us. So we go on into the 1990s and mass produce and advertise OxyContin, the new and improved opioid, aggressively marketed as safe and effective. And then in 1998, the Veterans Affairs and the Joint Commission, or at the time, JCO, define pain as the fifth vital sign. And we start to train our patients that the pain scale, how is your pain from 1 to 10, is just as important as their blood pressure or their temperature or their heartbeat. We drove this culture in the U.S. of believing that being in any pain at all was unnecessary and unacceptable. And simultaneously, Mexican black tar heroin arrived in San Francisco in the late 1980s, and through the 1990s, heroin's popularity also rises across the country. And we then start to see a rise in opioid-related deaths and complications from both prescription and illegal drugs. So much so that in 2008, opioid overdose becomes the leading cause of death in the United States. Despite that fact, despite the fact that opioids at that time are killing more Americans than literally anything else, just five years later in 2013, pain control was added to the formal patient satisfaction measures. This meant that physician reimbursement, doctor's pay, was literally in part based on patients' answers to the following questions. During this hospital stay, how often was your pain well controlled? How often did the hospital staff do everything they could to help you with your pain? Everything they could to help you with your pain. So while we were seeing this drastic rise in opioid-associated death and disease, we were still being pushed to take away any and all pain. And the best and the easiest way, the way that our patients expected from us because we had spent years teaching them to expect it, was opioids. 
Norco, Oxy, Morphine, Dilaudid, Fentanyl. As of 2015, there were 2 million people in the U.S. suffering from substance use disorders related to prescription opioid pain relievers. 2 million people. And to this day, about a third of all opioid-related deaths are from prescription opioid overdose. We did this. We created this problem. And yet, somewhere along the way, we hardcore turned our backs on these patients. We started labeling them with derogatory words like addict and junkie. We got irritated with them. We literally get mad at them for coming into our clinic or our hospital or our ER and asking for the medications that we trained them to ask for. We act like people with addiction or dependence issues are these like low-life losers who can't get it together, like they aren't as worthy of our care as a clean or a sober person is. But you know who else struggled with drug use? Kurt Cobain, Oprah, Janis Joplin, Steven Tyler, Prince. Uh, Brett Favre, Tiger Woods, John Belushi, Robin Williams, Demi Lovato, Elvis. And I don't know many people who stopped listening to Nirvana or Aerosmith or who stopped watching the NFL because of that. In fact, all of us can think of countless examples in media and movies and pop culture where drug use is glorified. It's made to seem sexy and appealing, like something that the rich and powerful and successful and cool people do. This did not come from the general public or pop culture. It came from us in healthcare. So it's going to absolutely require us taking up that torch to stop it. This is Andrew's story. I grew up in a very standard middle-class liberal family in the Bay Area where we didn't learn that drug use was a terrible thing. You know, no one in my family used drugs. You know, substance abuse was not a, a big issue for me growing up. But I also didn't learn that, you know, this, these were terrible people. I mean, we, these were many of my heroes from Bob Marley and John Coltrane and all of this sort of romanticism of it, really. And so it was only in medicine in that I really learned to honestly was taught to judge, to discriminate against people who, who are doing what, if you step back from a truly biomedical standpoint, is the most natural thing in the world. We are designed to seek reward and novelty. And that's all that, that drug use is from your coffee in the morning or my coffee in the morning, you know, or to your Chardonnay or your fentanyl. It's, it's all the same thing. So that judgment, that you know, discrimination and in some places, hatred, right? That's all taught by, by medicine. And so unwinding that is what the bridge has meant for me. My story with bridge, it begins, really the bridge began with returning to the, the whole reason that I even thought of becoming a doctor in the first place. I got out of college, I studied anthropology, and basically just feel like I learned that the world is kind of a f***ed up place, to be honest. And I got out and I looked at sort of all these traditional career paths. And they all kind of seemed like at some level, you're just sort of screwing somebody else to get ahead. It wasn't a great place to be in. Didn't really know where to go with it. And just stumbled into 
an opportunity to volunteer being a companion. It's like a buddy to people in the mental health system. I just thought it would be interesting. It would be fun. And through that experience, I got to know this incredible group of compassionate, driven people who didn't have all of this angst and confusion. They knew what they wanted to do and they were doing a good thing. They were helping other people and it made them feel fulfilled. And I literally fell in love with this group of people. My wife, you know, of 15 years is one of those people that I met. So my first actual job there was to be an employment counselor. My job was to get people hired who had psychiatric and substance use disabilities, severe, bipolar, schizophrenia, these types of things. And then I would go around and I would shop them, you know, to Target, golf stores, factories, whatever. And be like, hey, you know, I got these little deals, you know, some subsidies. Can you hire these folks? And that was just this incredible experience of just slamming into all this stigma where I had my team. I loved the people I worked with. They were absolutely hilarious, wonderful human beings that gave me just so much joy and drive in my life. And then I'd meet these people who were clearly completely clueless. Like they didn't know. They had all this baggage, these preformed conceptions of who these people were. And it just was incredibly apparent to me. So that was my whole life. I did that for three or four years. And along that road was how I decided I wanted to go into medicine. I hadn't taken, the only science I took was horticulture for super sketchy reasons, right? So I had to start from scratch. And basically, those people that were my clients, who were really my friends, they became my inspiration. They knew that I was studying to go for the MCAT. And I really felt like without them, I, I wasn't going to do it, right? And then that gets me going. I'm going to do public health work. I'm going to start a nonprofit in Oakland and work with undocumented folks. And these incredible things were happening. I go to medical school and doing projects in Boston and around the globe. These mentors, these high-minded, idealistic people. And it felt right. It felt like this is, this is what I signed up for. And then I landed Highland, this incredible institution with this decades-long experience, you know, dedicated to serving people who have nowhere else to go. But my life became increasingly just reduced and reduced and reduced in this medical model. And I went along with the flow. I got incredibly into these minutia of medicine, these ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia, and these just very technical things. But Along the way, I just started not hating myself, but I just felt myself going farther and farther and farther away. You know, and in the ER, it's very visceral. You're doing these procedures, you're cutting open abscesses and needles and intubations and trauma. And it just started to feel colder and colder and colder. And I felt like I was being set up into these fights you know, with the very people that had drawn me in this, into this in the first place. And I didn't really know where to go. And I just had one mentor who, in a very simple way, just offered up this other path around buprenorphine, honestly, as this single tool that I could use. And a 
general approach to addiction that actually you could go back to that humanistic, idealistic place that drew me into medicine and treat this like any other disease with compassion. And suddenly it became this incredible problem. It became the best of both worlds. It became why I did this. It became both this idealistic, humanistic drive and this incredibly complicated technical problem of withdrawal and precipitated withdrawal and buprenorphine pharmacokinetics and logistics of organizing staff and all of this detailed stuff that I really, really love. But now I could bring it together with, with heart. And all of us who've done this, it's not a delayed gratification kind of thing, right? It's like once you take this path, that first time you go from someone who literally you were going to kick out of the ER, you're going to be like, no, no, I got this. I'll get him out of here, right? You, you, you flip that switch and all of a sudden they're your friend. They're nice to you. You're nice to them. Their symptoms are healed. They feel better. And it's just this instant gratification that just felt right from the very first patient who I will never forget, right? And, and until today. And now and we've just seen it grow and expand and it's become friends across the globe, across the country, across the state. It's just deepening with every day. And I just am eternally and daily grateful for this experience. So thank you. Andrew's story is a raw admission of something that doesn't feel very good to own as a medical community. We are the ones who teach each other to have disdain and intolerance for patients with substance use issues, opioid dependence, and chronic pain. This attitude is one we learn working in medicine. It's a tradition that we've embraced and passed on for years, and we really, really need to change that. We talk about provider burnout and how working in healthcare is really tough, and it is, but you know what doesn't really help with that? Holding that much judgment and irritation and anger towards our patients. And the flip side, you know what feels amazing? Letting go of that stigma, meeting patients where they're at, connecting with people, being able to have honest, constructive conversations with our patients that struggle with drug use, and to offer them evidence-based solutions. Like Andrew so perfectly described, it's insanely rewarding to take that patient-centered, compassionate approach instead of the typical super negative experience we normally offer in our hospitals and clinics to patients who use drugs. It is absolutely 100% our burden to own that we, the healthcare community, created this problem how we drove not only the widespread use of opioids in our country, but the judgment and the stigma that surround it. And only we can change that. Thank you to Andrew Herring for sharing his story with us, to the team at California Bridge for improving the care we provide to patients with substance use disorder in our country, and for telling their story through Real Talk, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer, and of course, to all of you for listening. I'm Alicia, and this is Real Talk.
California Bridge is a program of the Public Health Institute with funding through the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to the California Department of Healthcare Services. For more information, head to bridge2treatment.org.